Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. Welcome to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I am none other than Daniel McCarthy. Now, before I get into the show, I just want to apologize for being behind in releasing the next episode of They Say. If you caught the last episode of They Say, then you know that my wife and I recently moved. And as some of you will know, that's a hell of a lot of work. So, we're behind on the show. But nonetheless, I do want to get an episode out soon about some historical articles from the CFR Journal, and then get the show on the latest issue up soon after that. Okay, so today I'm presenting you with part two of my discussion with Kevin Cole on the ancient Greek orator Isocrates. For part one of this series, refer back to episode nine of the Story of Nowhere podcast. In this episode we cover an article by James Muir, entitled, Is Our History of Educational Philosophy Mostly Wrong? The Case of Isocrates. Pretty juicy title. Kevin and I discuss how there's been a tendency among scholars of education, yes, such people exist, they don't really know their own history. Instead, the history of educational philosophy has been manufactured and remanufactured for centuries. This discussion takes us from the Greece of Isocrates and Plato and Aristotle, to Charlemagne and Alcuin in the Middle Ages, to Locke and Rousseau in the Enlightenment, up to the modern day. Oh, and we talk about the Progressive Era a bit and talk shit on John Dewey, which always brings me joy. So, this is a pretty wide-ranging discussion, though we do dig in and get pretty specific at certain points. This is a deep history episode, which is why I wanted to release it after the last episode I did, episode 11, which was a short, general introduction to historiography. Now, you get to see both history and historiography in action. So as you listen to this episode, Notice how the different historiographical approaches I outlined in the last show pop up and sort of blend together in this one. Alright, make sure you check out Kevin's work at unityofthepolis.com and enjoy the Story of Nowhere podcast, episode 12, The Realm of Isocrates, part 2. Is our history of educational philosophy mostly wrong? The Return of the Octors. This course of mine in reading the great books has been adopted in many colleges, but not always as I intended it. Many teachers have turned it into a course on philosophy, on some specific philosophy, and others have tried to expand it into an educational method for teaching all subjects. With these aberrations, I have no sympathy whatever. Science, I think, should be studied in the laboratory not in the literary gropings towards science before laboratories existed, and to confound all racial and personal variations of history in one philosophy is, I think, to abandon that training of the mind, which enables us to observe accurately and make distinctions. I was concerned with no philosophy and no method for a total education. I hoped merely to teach how to read. So there's just this very human impulse to rest on your own laurels, to assume that people who are contradicting you are 
doing so in bad faith. And that leads you to get angry and to dig your heels in and to not want to actually contend with the evidence and admit that you're wrong, which, while, while painful in the moment, of course, no one likes to be proven wrong, but in the long run, you're actually going to better your own field, which I would hope that people who are actually interested in this stuff genuinely, that's really what they would want to do. Rather than furthering their own intellectual uh, status, they would want to actually expand the field of educational history. And I mean, what a sensation it would be if a whole new generation of educational philosophers came out and said, guys, everything that our predecessors have been saying has been wrong for a hundred years. I mean, let's get to work on fixing it. Hello, everyone. My name is Kevin Cole, and welcome to the Ominous Continuity Podcast, Episode 9, created and produced by UOP Media. Today's episode is part two in a series I've titled The Realm of Isocrates. Is our history of educational philosophy mostly wrong? The return of the auctors. If you'd like to support my historical research and future productions of UOP Media, please check out my website at unityofthepolis.com. You can access exclusive content, historical artifacts, and rare audiobook readings in the media archive at patreon.com slash uopmedia. You can also support my music by checking out my latest album, Decibel Poets, American Crisis Radio, which I released on bandcamp.com late last year. Today, I'm glad to be joined again by Daniel McCarthy. Daniel is an author, writer, and fellow researcher. You can check out his work at storyofnowhere.com. And last but not least, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of my UOP Research Brain, which is an exhaustive historical database and mind map I've been compiling since 2009, containing over 12,000 individual entries and 29,000-plus links on topics such as Western civilization, international relations and education theory, the trivium of liberal arts education, tragedy and hope in the Anglo-American establishment, geopolitics, the tax-free foundations, psychology, sociology, behaviorism, religion, cybernetics, secret societies, and the history of world order. So with all of that in mind, this is The Ominous Continuity, Episode 9. Is Our History of Educational Philosophy Mostly Wrong? by James Muir, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Winnipeg. There are two very different accounts of the history of educational philosophy and the ideas presently available. One account is the work of historical scholars and classicists, 
and is based on thorough historical research. The other account is the work of educationists and philosophers, and is generally based on little or no historical research in the history of educational thought. Consequently, the prevailing accounts of the history of educational philosophy produced by educationists and philosophers over the last 50 years are remarkably inaccurate. The inaccuracies are of two kinds. The unequaled influence of the educational ideas and practices of Isocrates, Plato's rival, is almost wholly unrecognized, and the knowledge of the tradition of the autonomous educational thought has been lost. Contemporary educational philosophy has much to gain, both in new methods and ideas, and in the recovery of some of the academic credibility it still lacks, by recovering the legacy of Isocrates and the tradition of autonomous educational thought. To be very clear here, when he says autonomous education, he means the goals and value of education are deduced from an axiomatic political doctrine which defines justice. Well, so right off the bat, when I first read the abstract, the question that immediately came to my mind was, if this is the case, that our understanding of educational history and the philosophy that undergirds it is, I mean, just totally incorrect, as he's saying, that it's based on this myth almost of a platonic succession, when in fact it's isocratic. The question is, on what is the platonic history based? What is their argument? What has been the traditional argument for the past however many decades or even centuries, as we'll see, what has been the argument that it was Plato, if indeed it's not? What have they been saying? So the, right off the bat, I was really excited to get into this article and see how such a mistake could be made and then sustained. And I think that this article does a pretty good job of getting into the particulars of the history of education. But there's also, I think, a larger, more general lesson to be learned in this article regarding how once a one little mistake is made, then it's that telephone game and it gets perpetuated and perpetuated. And you've got authorities parroting this mistake and entire branches of uh, study will come out of it and it's all just based on a on a bad foundation. So it's a, a reminder to all of us, I think, to really pay attention and to check our premises, regardless of what we're studying. And ironically, this lesson comes from the history of education <laughs> being entirely flawed, which is just beautiful. <laughs> it speaks, I think it speaks a lot to just how the idea of institutional education itself is humorous and laughable if they can't even get their own history of their own philosophy right. It's not like they, oops, made a mistake about some historical irrelevant minutiae type of fact. Like, no, you are literally mistaking where your philosophy is coming from. That's, uh, that's pretty bad. So that, yeah, that's just from the abstract what I was thinking as, as I started reading the article. Yeah, I have to agree with you. When I first started looking into the history of the trivium many years ago now, and the concept of grammar, logic, and rhetoric as a systematized, integrated form of education or a method that could be used to gain knowledge, it was very difficult to sort through who was actually responsible for this lineage. You find that many of the most venerated educational historians and educationists went down this other path where they said that Aristotle, in some cases, like Thomas Davidson or uh, others, said that, that Plato was the one responsible and credit this to Plato's laws or to Plato's Republic, altogether neglecting earlier classicist arguments and things that have been discovered over time. And it's been known widely for over 100 years that Isocrates was the 
educator of Europe and known as the father of liberal education. In fact, historian uh, Henry Moreau, as pointed out in the article, said that Plato had been defeated because he, quote, failed to impose his educational idea onto posterity. And this meant that Isocrates has the legacy of being the educator of the ancient world. And it's not to diminish uh, Plato and the Socratic's influence on regular philosophy or general kind of philosophy, but it was actually educational philosophy of Isocrates that permeated the medieval period through Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. And it's said that Isocrates went from the ancient Greeks to the Byzantinian world, from the Romans to the Latin West. And well-known medievalist, uh, as quoted in this article, David Bowles, illustrates how, quote, the future lies with Isocrates. And we're going to find out how he influenced the Renaissance of the 15th century and how his ideas were reappropriated by Victorian scholars as an attempt to find educational models for state schooling. When Britain was trying to shore up its national identity in the face of all these different nation states and people that were securing federal unions, they were looking back to this Greek model, this classical model of education as a way to bring about a specific kind of polity. During the Renaissance of the 15th century, you get the European rediscovery of Plato and Aristotle. And also this kind of dichotomy between the Socratic philosophers versus the Isocratic rhetors or orators. There's a good book by a University of Chicago alum, Kimball, called Orators and Philosophers, which breaks down these dueling traditions of the liberal arts education between the Socratic philosophers and the Isocratic rhetors. Uh, Isocrates proves to be the most influential Uh, well into the 18th century, and he doesn't stop there. Uh, His 18th century schooling influence and the creation and systematization of educational philosophies really becomes his legacy. And it's not just that, he's also credited with keeping humanism and, quote, Western unity alive in general. So we are going to discuss a little bit today about the origins of the humanities and, in particular, the origins of state schooling and Isocrates' role in that. Back in 2011, I had the privilege of being a part of a project called The Ultimate History Lesson with John Taylor Gatto. He is a 30-year-long educator who wrote The Underground History of American Education, Dumbing Us Down, and Weapons of Mass Instruction. And uh, I was very fortunate to become friends with him through my involvement with Tragedy and Hope and Richard Grove and Lisa Arpacheski, led to the co-producing of that project and uh, communicating with him up until his passing uh, a few years ago. John Taylor Gatto was particularly interested in discovering this ominous continuity that had existed throughout time that led to the creation of compulsory schooling. In a discussion posted to YouTube called Death by Pedagogy, John Taylor Gatto identifies Alcuin of York as being the originator of compulsory education during the Carolingian Renaissance. The problem with Isocrates and his being left out of historical thought in these areas is that he's barely mentioned at all. This is what led James Weir to write this article, what led him to write his book. Over the last hundred years, a lot of progressive educators and well-known figures like John Dewey have been responsible for neglecting aspects of our educational philosophy and reappropriating ideas without giving credit for doing so. Creates a situation where you have the educationist versus the historians. 
John Dewey, Curran, and many others neglect Isocrates' legacy and instead credit these Platonic sources. James Weir cannot excuse these errors and omissions when faced with the known classical and historical scholarship that existed. And so for James Weir, he says that this is a pitting of evidence versus orthodox assertion. Yeah, I, I appreciate how he, he's pointing out in this article that there has been a a narrative which has been forged over time that attributes educational history and philosophy to Plato and Aristotle. And this mistaken idea has entrenched itself in the minds of those people who deliver us our education from these higher institutions. And of course, once these people get something in their mind, of course, they're the experts. And so who, are, who is anybody else to question them? Uh, so the myth perpetuates in that form. When authorities hold it and continue to teach it, uh, it turns into this orthodoxy that even though it can't stand up to the actual historical evidence, people are going to continue to spread it. And so this article goes, I think, a long way to breaking down that orthodoxy. And of course, even in the end of the article, he kind of, he addresses a particular scholar and deals with some potential criticisms of his argument and demonstrates that this educational philosopher who was trying to criticize the the role of Isocrates as presented by Muir, that uh, this guy really had no basis in his argument. But as I already said, this is a great lesson that just because authorities are perpetuating a myth or a narrative, just because they are in a position of authority does not mean necessarily that that myth has any factual basis. And there's nuance here. And nuance is an idea that we're always going to be coming back to. This isn't to say that Plato had nothing to do with education. And certainly, I mean, the role of education in the formation of a state was something that Plato talked about in the Republic. And I, I mentioned this in my book quite a bit, how, you know, the role of school in a state was something that Plato was very concerned with. However, as Muir is pointing out, the actual uh, practice of schooling and how it's done is not a platonic curriculum. It's an isocratic one. I think you make a great point there in how he was pitting people of evidence versus those that make orthodox assertions. And Isocrates' education or this looking back at the great authors and the analogical reasoning to certain grammarians, we're kind of seeing a similar problem emerge within the history of educational thought is that people throughout time are ascribing this history to those who are not actually responsible for it. And that can be a problem of omission, or it could just be a problem that these texts were not available for them to interpret at the time in which they were living. Plato is mentioned by Thomas Jefferson and letters to John Adams as being the person responsible for the current education of his time. When you actually look back at the legacy of it, you'll see that Isocrates' civic education also plays a massive role in this. There is a Victorian revival that took place. And what this Victorian revival is, according to Muir, is the applying of the historical ideas and philosophies of the ancient world to mass education and schooling. And a very prominent Victorian educational philosopher named R.H. Quick noted that the history of educational philosophy had long been neglected in England. And he also discovered that John Locke's writings on education were out of print in England, and he ended up republishing some of his thoughts on education starting in 1880. 
there were classicists like Richard Nettleship, W.H. Woodward, and S.S. Laurie who published these individual studies highlighting Plato's educational ideas and those that were central to Plato's Republic or to Plato's laws, bringing Renaissance ideas into the conversation about educational aims and the methods of schooling became very prominent within this Victorian revival. One of these was a classicist by the name of Thomas Davidson. Thomas Davidson was the founder of the Fellowship of the New Life. He was known as the Wandering Scholar. The Fellowship of the New Life became the Fabian Society in England, leading to the London School of Economics. Davidson was also a member of the St. Louis Philosophical Society of William Torrey Harris. And in his philosophical journals, the speculative, he was responsible for publishing the first translation of Dionysus Thrax into English. It was classicist Thomas Davidson who published a study on Aristotle's educational ideas that went through multiple printings and were very popular between 1892 and 1904. This paper was entitled Aristotle and Ancient Educational Ideals by Davidson. It asserts that Plato is the root of the medieval trivium and quadrivium. Davidson's book was part of a series entitled The Great Educators, published by William Heinemann Publishers. This was a 10-volume set that also included Alcuin and the Rise of Christian Schools by Andrew Fleming West. Andrew Fleming West was the creator of the American Classical League, the dean of the Princeton Graduate School, and president of the American Classical League, which was funded by the Rockefeller General Education Board with $110,000 to investigate classical education in American secondary schools. This study was to be completed by January 1st of 1924 and involved 125,000 pupils, 750 schools, testing over a period of two years, 17 leading professors of education and psychology cooperating in the study, 7,000 teachers of the classics in English, French, and history. And what they found out was that there was valuable information regarding changes and improvements in English and French classical education that is being secured from British and French ministries of education and through our other agencies and brought into the United States. Alcuin in the Rise of Christian Schools discusses the history of Alcuin of York. Alcuin of York is credited as being the coiner of the term trivium. And according to John Taylor Gatto, he is the person responsible for the first ever compulsory system of education at the Palace School at Aiken under Charlemagne. So this Great Educators series, which was published from 1896 to 1912, was edited by Nicholas Marie Butler. Nicholas Marie Butler was the president of Columbia University, the president of the Transatlantic Pilgrim Society, the vice president of the English-speaking Union, the Committee to Defend America by Aiding the Allies, the Council on Foreign Relations, head of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, a close personal friend of Harry Brattain, the founder of the Pilgrim Society, the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, he also gave the School of Mines medal to Charlotte Isserbeet's Skull and Bones grandfather, who was a close friend of Abe Bailey, who was Cecil Rhodes' best friend and a Rhodes Roundtable member, a Columbia Rhodes Scholarship board member. Butler also favored siding with Britain in World War I, created the Teachers College, was the president of the World Peace Foundation of Edward Ginn, and a close personal friend of William T. Stead, and on and on. 
So you can see how this guy stands out to me as somebody very relevant to my research on both the sides of the Rhodes Roundtable uh, group and the history of liberal arts education. Here you have the president of Columbia University, who is an avowed transnationalist, who is the head of the Pilgrim Society, who is the vice president of the English Speaking Union, which was created as an homage to John Robert Seeley and Cecil Rhodes by Evelyn Wrench. Andrew Fleming West asserts in Alcuin and the Rise of Christian Schools, it is possible that the word trivium as a formal designation for grammar, rhetoric, and dialectics might go back to the time of Bothius. And that's a problem. He just didn't know. This is one of the educational historians uh, most relied on by Princeton University and Columbia University and promoted by Nicholas Marie Butler. And he's making assertions to educational philosophy that do not pan out and, and were not even in parallel with what was known at the time. There was also an attempt at a Victorian revival of American educational philosophy and educational technologies. The Rockefeller General Education Board was responsible for funding the American Classical League, which was looking at a way to import new ideas of liberal arts education into the United States, where it had been argued by people like I.A. Richards and others that nationalism had overtaken the liberal arts within the university system and that the humanities were on the decline. Elihu Root, who was a founder of the Council on Foreign Relations and a avowed classicist, said, I am a firm believer in the value of studying Greek and Latin. Although in afterlife one may forget what he has learned, he may never lose the influence upon his character. Even a slight appreciation of those wonderful races from whom so much of our civilization has come, gained by studying intently the very words they spoke and wrote, tends to broaden the student's vision and enlarge his understanding of life. Elihu Root, the founder of the Council on Foreign Relations. From Woodrow Wilson, soon to be president of the United States, but president of Princeton University and the head of the Rhodes Scholarships Committee at Princeton University, we should have scant capital to trade on were we to throw away the wisdom which we have inherited and seek our fortunes with the slender stock we ourselves have accumulated. This, it seems to me, is the real prevalent argument for holding every man we can to the intimate study of the ancient classics. What you cannot find a substitute for is the classics as literature, and there can be no firsthand contact with that literature, if you are not master the grammar and the syntax which convey its subtle power, your enlightenment depends on the company you keep. You do not know the world until you know the men who have possessed it and tried its wares before you were ever given brief run upon it. And there is no sanity comparable with that which is schooled in the thoughts that will keep. All literature has lasted this claim upon us, that it is not dead, but we cannot be quite so sure of any of it as we are the ancient literature that still lives, because none of us have lived that long. It holds a sort of primacy in the aristocracy of natural selection. Woodrow Wilson. And this is from Six Opinions, Some Questions and Answers, from 1917, by Princeton and Andrew Fleming West. The Great Educators goes back to the concept of the greats. This is an idea perpetuated by Matthew Arnold in his translations and importation of Prussian Bildungsideal, or the ideas of self-cultivation. The series featured books by classical and medieval scholars on the educational ideas of important classical and medieval educational philosophers, such as Loyola, Alcuin, Abelard, and others. These thinkers are very important in the history of educational philosophy, but are much less significant in the history of other branches of general philosophy, such as epistemology or metaphysics. They are noted in Victorian accounts of the history of educational thought, precisely because the Victorian educationists were attempting to revive the history of educational philosophy 
as an independent branch of philosophy without assuming that educational philosophy was limited to or an application of the ideas of the canonical philosophers or metaphysics or epistemology or political philosophy. Subsequent educationists and philosophers of education, however, adopted erroneous assumptions that the history of educational philosophy is primarily or only the history of what canonical philosophers concerned with metaphysics or epistemology may have said or implied about that education. So the Victorians started to recover some of these ideas and apply them and had a renewed interest in the educational thought of Isocrates in English, French, and German. Muir primarily concentrates upon English. But John Dewey, Paul Hurst, and Curtis, and many others provided very inaccurate histories and neglected or obscured the importance of educational philosophy and Isocrates' legacy. This leads to the pitting of the educationist versus the historical scholars. Yeah, the initiation of the state schooling system and the, the legacy of classical education as perpetuated in the Victorian era we need to consider it in the context of imperialism. And we can recall from the last episode that Isocrates also is the progenitor of this idea of a European identity, uh, of a kind of continental unity. And of course, this goes part and parcel with the concept of imperialism. So we can see just even on a very general surface level how Isocratic education might be beneficial to a a cadre of people who are seeking to unify a very large and culturally diverse set of people. So, of course, with Wilson referring to the classics as uh, being prime in the aristocracy of natural selection, in case anyone doesn't know, Woodrow Wilson was a very firm believer in the idea of a social organism or a body politic. Um, This is a medieval idea in, really, it's an ancient idea in origin that translated into the Middle Ages and was very important then. Uh, But Woodrow Wilson and a lot of progressive thinkers, they reanimated the concept of the body politic, but applied a kind of veneer of the new science upon it. So they would speak about the social organism in Darwinian terms. They would say it's evolving. And very importantly, progressive ideology essentially views the state as the driving force behind that social evolution. And so if that's the case... And of course, the state is going to be involved in education, which is another thing the progressives really pushed for. We're going to see, according to Woodrow Wilson, this classical education being the selective force, you might say, of the upper echelon or the governing class of the body politic, the head, if you will, the heads of state, the people who are going to be making all the important managerial decisions will be trained classically. This will afford them the proper social and political understandings that someone like Wilson sees as necessary for the proper ruling of a body politic. And, you know, this gets into some larger philosophy that I'll I'll leave for another conversation uh, regarding the role of the state and what philosophers have said about that. But what's crucial to this and the involvement of Isocrates after his death in this imperial project is that The ideology of unifying people behind a tradition of written works is something that you almost couldn't do without somebody like Isocrates, because as we saw last time, not only did he have this idea of Europe, but he was also the one to really be the first writer. Graphene, I believe, was the word. 
He was writing these long documents that people could then read. And assuming people are speaking the same language, literature gives them something to unify behind. So in promoting the classics as the basis of Western civilization as an entity, as a thing, Western civilization as one object, uh, and the classics being that which undergird them, the powers that be are in effect able to install a a government apparatus on top of that unity. And that seems to be, and by government, I don't mean necessarily just what we think of as government. I personally would say a private company could also be tantamount to government in its operation. Great example of this is, of course, the East India Company, which literally ruled India as if it were the government, but it was a company. So all of these things can be applied and used to control people and to uh, siphon their resources from them and whatnot. If you've got this cultural understanding that what we're doing is right and just and perhaps ordained by God or by nature. Of course, this is what Gatto talks a lot about in the ultimate history lesson. And uh, this is just adding to that understanding by looking at Isocrates. I'm interested in, again, why, if it's clear to us, and if it's clear to historians like Muir, that Isocrates factually is the progenitor for a lot of this classical education, but also that the system that he created is almost from its inception, something that's noticeably useful to people who might want to control large populations. Why is it that they don't give him the credit? Why is it that they instead say, oh, it's Plato? And of course, a lot of that is probably just accidental omission over time. You know, it's difficult to study ancient stuff. But now we do have evidence and there seems to be some resistance to people accepting that who are authorities. But uh, another aspect that he brings up as to why people might have given their have, have credited the origins of their educational theory to Plato is simply because, well, Plato's important. Everyone knows who he is. He's got a recognizable name. I mean, practically the father of philosophy. And so if you can credit your field to Plato, it kind of gives you, uh, it legitimizes you, right? And uh, so he, he kind of, I don't think he really comes out and says it at any point, like this is what they did, but he does allude to it at least uh, a few times, like, well, you know, basically these educational philosophers are saying like, Plato's my dad too. And that creates some problems because if you actually read Plato, which, yeah, how many people actually bother to do that? But uh, you should. You probably should if you're going to talk about it anyway. And uh, if you do read it, you'll find that his curriculum, it doesn't exactly line up with what uh, we think of as the liberal arts. I mean, just go read The Republic, find the trivium, find it in there. Uh, you know, it's not. It's just not there. Uh, there are some elements of the quadrivium, obviously, because these are, you know, it's not like none of these arts are important to Plato. But the uh, the liberal system as perpetuated by Isocrates and then on through through history is just simply not present in his work. But uh, it would be convenient for people who would like to seem important, I suppose, to uh, to credit Plato as the founder of their field effectively. So moving from that, if you if you don't mind, um, I just wanted to add and I'll throw it back to you how we're dealing with two problems here. One, there are these people who are saying that it all goes back to Plato and Aristotle. But then really with John Dewey, 
coming up in the progressive era, we've got this whole other group of people who also don't credit Isocrates, but they don't credit Plato or Aristotle either. They don't credit anybody. (laughs) They just say, oh, we just came up with all of this stuff on our own right now because we're great. So that's uh, another sort of person that he tackles in here. I love how he takes John Dewey to task. I love an opportunity to see John Dewey trashed a little bit. I'm not a fan. So I really enjoyed Muir's criticism of it. I thought it was well done. Kind of showing not only the the factual lack of evidence that uh, these people have for claiming that they originated educational theory, but also really exposing a lot of the arrogance. That is an important thing to realize that there is a lot of ego here. That's not to ad hominem John Dewey or anything. Dewey is kind of the father, if you will, of maybe the modern model of educational theory. We can credit him with that probably. And when you find out that the founder of that field in its modern sense is essentially crazy and his his uh, claims are baseless and might be quite a bit ego driven, uh, that's going to give that's a problem. That's a definite problem. And it means that you've got to question a lot of the field itself. So without getting too far away from where we want to be right now at this point in the show, I'll throw it back to you. I think what you're hitting on there is the difference between a natural aristocracy and an artificial aristocracy. William Tory Harris, who was the commissioner of education, who was responsible for introducing the literature humanities of the Rhodes Scholarships, put forth that at that time, in 1902, 1903, the ambassadors were woefully unprepared to go represent themselves around the world because they were lost in this intellectual tradition that the United States had somehow been divorced from the tradition of the medieval universities and that Oxford and Bologna and Paris, mainly Oxford, was the last vestige of this literature humanities education. And therefore, if we could send our best and brightest over there, especially the State Department people, ambassadors, then they could go over there and be educated along this historical virtue. And then they could come back and represent the country in a virtuous way and integrated within this commonwealth of humanity idea. That was the purpose of the Rhodes Scholarships. William Torrey Harris was an American friend of Thomas Davidson, previously mentioned. This conversation was ripe at the time. The concepts of liberal education and Victorian revival and Matthew Arnold and uh, Fichte and uh, Bill Dung's deal and the idea of perpetuating a common culture who cared about the truth. It's just that the common culture would be perpetuated. The people that would care about the truth would be those that went into higher learning. So they kind of got to a point where there was a stratification of this education system. John Dewey being somebody, as you pointed out very well, who was responsible for this. Dewey put forth ideas of progress, discovery, and traditions that are actually more in line with Isocrates while himself not crediting anybody but himself. And he was kind of an egomaniac, and there were others who who did this. But Muir presents Dewey as someone who is disinterested in a serious study or accounting of the history of educational thought, modern discoveries over traditions that he can't even name. He can't even cite them or he can't even reference them. Muir really highlights the importance of being able to look back and see if you're reliving someone else's ideas. Uh, Dewey makes a lot of claims of originalist intent or ideas that are actually going back to Isocrates. 
Muir says that Dewey's recent interpreters credit him with originating progressive ideas that the primary aim of schooling ought not to be to transmit knowledge to the students, but rather that the socializing function of education is better served when educators are allowed to practice experience and teach students the skill of effective and practical judgment and the problems of human living. His interpreters are mistaken to claim that this idea originates with Dewey, and I'm not aware that Dewey himself has made any claim of originality here in particular, but on the contrary, this idea is exactly what Isocrates has argued 20 centuries ago. Dewey himself honestly acknowledged that he had not even read the works of educational thinkers whose ideas he was said to uh, have been influenced by. He didn't include Rousseau or Froebel in his studies until he had already formed some of his educational outlook, which in some ways seems to contradict some of Gatto's individual thoughts on John Dewey. Uh, ascribed a lot of this to the Pestalozzian heritage. It's interesting to see that maybe Dewey was even more vacuous than what Gatto was implying at that time. Dewey used Rousseau as a rhetorical prop without any serious engagement of these works. Dewey here seems to have not known that the concern with the early years of life is an explicit and continuous concern of educational thinkers from Isocrates to Plato through Quintilian and beyond. The idea that you need to get the kids young in order to allow them to develop these virtuous ideas over time or to interface with these different arts and to grow into them. To mention only a single example, it is well known that the sophists Georgius and Protagoras sought to develop the Sicilian tradition of rhetorical education originating with Titius and Corax and not, as Dewey claims, the unspecified methods of unidentified natural philosophers. Dewey presents a large number of false historical claims, most of which consist of trying to give Plato credit for educational ideas and practices which were actually originated and developed by Isocrates and his followers. Dewey begins with two related historical assertions. First, that the school, defined as a public institution with a regular curriculum, was invented by Plato and first presented in the laws, and second, that Plato's academy was the first such institution. Yet it was well known in Dewey's time that both of these assertions are false. The schools of the Pythagoreans existed for a century before Plato, and Isocrates' school opened several years before the academy and offered a very regular curriculum. While the Pythagoreans, Hippias, Avellus, Georgius, and others also developed fixed curricula decades before the laws were written, Dewey then asserts that the original medieval quadrivium, composed of arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, was passed to the medieval universities through the laws and the republic. This is not merely wrong, it's quite impossible. It's well known and well established by historical scholarship that the quadrivium is a medieval innovation, based on medieval modifications of the Isocratean liberal arts and that Plato's laws or the Republic could not have had such an influence on medieval education because medieval Europe did not even possess these texts, which is pretty astonishing. It's a pretty big mistake for Dewey to be making there. He asserts that it is generally recognized, Dewey says, that, the, that Plato's academy was somehow the origin of the medieval university. So he's making really ridiculous kind of grandiose general claims that don't stand to even the historical knowledge that existed at the time that he was making it. And it's, it's very interesting that he gets credited as such an innovator when really he's just kind of mimicking other people's ideas and not giving them credit for said ideas. 
So the educationist tendency was to exclude the study of the history of educational philosophy. There are those like Peters, Dearden, Hurst, and White, and other misguided attempts that make appeals to general philosophers when talking about educational philosophy throughout time. Hurst, in particular, Paul Hurst, credits liberal education and the liberal arts as having originated with Aristotle, using fragments of Aristotle's politics and secondary sourcing at that. Muir correctly asserts that the intellectual disciplines of the liberal education were formulated at least two generations before Aristotle and were familiar to Plato and Socrates. Hippias of Elis, regarded by antiquity as having been the originator of the pedagogical systematization of the liberal arts system. It was actually Isocrates' school of education that prevailed. It was long known that the program of liberal arts education was not invented by Aristotle, as Thomas Davidson and Hearst and these others had asserted. Muir says, continuing this history of liberal education, Hearst asserts that the liberal arts defined as the trivium comprising grammar, logic, and rhetoric in a quadrivium comprising arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy was devised by the Greeks and the Romans. Furthermore, he asserts that liberal arts education defined by the trivium and the quadrivium was for centuries regarded as the finest possible. It was not until the medieval times that the liberal studies suffered any challenge at all. These historical claims, once again, could not be more wrong. Indeed, Hearst's claims are exactly the opposite of what both historical evidence and generations of historical scholarship have already told us. As Muir has shown in the next paragraphs, it is well known and established for centuries that the liberal arts were not divided into the trivium and quadrivium by the Greeks or by the Romans, but by medieval African and European educators. It is well established and widely known for centuries that the trivium and the quadrivium were not challenged in the medieval period, but in fact first became and then remained authoritative in medieval education until the Renaissance of the 15th century. Muir states that the great Roman educational thinker, Marcus Varro, for example, listed nine educational disciplines in his Disciplinarian Libre, seven of which later became canonical liberal arts. The division of the liberal arts into seven and the names of the trivium and the quadrivium did not originate with the Greeks or the Romans. Indeed, given the diversity of Greek and Roman educational thought, those terms are so general that they are quite meaningless as historical denotations. That's pretty mind-blowing. This is something we've been researching and looking at for many years now. And we're here is saying that uh, these connotations are essentially meaningless as historical uh, denotations. On the contrary, both the divisions of the liberal arts into two groups and the naming of each group occurred during the medieval period, as I've discussed previously with Alcuin of York, who went to go petition the Pope for an archbishopric status and ran into Charlemagne and became the educator of Europe at the Palace of Aiken and the Palace of York. If you want to point to a father of pre-modern schooling, Alcuin is really your man. And um, there was definitely a Neoplatonic uh, water in which a lot of these early medievalists swam. The, the issue is, uh, notice I didn't say platonic, I said Neoplatonic. And this is because, as Muir points out, the specific books of Plato, like particularly the Republic and the Laws, which you could argue are his most politically important, it's not like these were sitting on the shelves of every library in what was then called Frankland. I mean, these were, for lack of a better term, these were barbarians we're talking about who were just beginning to integrate the, uh, the Roman culture, which had taken Plato and filtered it through its own philosophers. So specifically, Cicero is the one who springs most readily to mind. So when we talk about Neoplatonism, 
in the Middle Ages, we have to recall and really appreciate that we're not actually talking about people who were reading Plato. We're talking about people who were playing a game of telephone with Plato. So this is where I can see the lines of educational philosophy becoming muddied because people are talking about Plato in the Middle Ages and they're they're thinking that they're drawing on his philosophy in the way they organize their general polity. Um, if anyone's interested in a general overview of what medieval polity was like, I would recommend the story of philosophy by Will Durant, in which he has a criticism of in his chapter on Plato, and he talks about the similarities between Plato's political philosophy and medieval polity. The issue is, and Durant does not make the claim that this was a direct relationship, the issue is these people didn't necessarily know they were actually basing their polity off of Plato. In fact, they weren't basing it off of it. They were basing it off of a Roman version of Plato, which had been muddied and translated and essentially misrepresented. So it was like part Plato, but also part something else. So in that flawed translation over a period of hundreds and hundreds of years, at least, the educational philosophy of Plato gets lost and I think replaced perhaps by accident, probably by accident of just, you know, sheer incompetence of trying to maintain good records when you don't have a printing press, that sort of thing. Um, his, the, the Isocratean educational model gets grafted onto the Platonic model of polity in the, in the Roman period and the early middle ages. Uh, now that's just, that's my speculation. I'm not saying I have evidence that this is particularly what happened, but Studying early medieval history to the extent that I have leads me to believe that this throwing back to Plato, as you've as you've called it, um, probably occurred simply by mistake at first. And then this kind of false view of Plato became entrenched in the Western mind because, hey, I mean, he's we've been told that he's what we're built on. And so then people have this tendency to throw back to Plato because that's just kind of what we do. Obviously, if anyone's considered a great author, it would be Plato. And uh, the, the, the joke about what makes a great book is that everyone quotes it and nobody reads it. So I think that that pretty much sums up this issue with Plato. All you got to do is go read the Republic, read the laws, and you'll find that, yeah, he's got an educational system, but it ain't the one we've got now. Not, not even close. Not even close. So I think what you're really hitting on there is that there is a, a historical tendency to generalize the things that we don't know. We we like to kind of fill in the gaps uh, in order to have a cohesive view of the world. It makes sense to do that. So uh, it could be that just circumstance at which these documents were rediscovered over time and then the academic prowess of whoever was translating them or presenting them to the public that would have a major role in the perceptions of the polity that one is creating or the analogical thought that one is using in order to base political ideas. The idea of authorship has a lengthy and somewhat problematic genealogy. From the beginning, this genealogy has been associated with a related figure, the individual, quote, subject. Unlike other works referring to a writer's activity, such as an essayist or a poet or a dramatist, the term author raises questions about authority and whether the individual is the source or the effect of the authority. The word author derives from the medieval term auctor, which denoted a writer whose words commanded respect and belief. The word auctor derived from four etymological sources, the Latin verbs agrere, to act or form, aieo, to tie, 
aguere, to grow, and from the Greek noun autentem, or authority. In the Middle Ages, every discipline in the trivium had auctors, Cicero in rhetoric, Aristotle in dialectic, the ancient poets in grammar, and similarly in the quadrivium, Ptolemy in astronomy, Constantine in medicine, and the Bible in theology, Bothius in arithmetic. Octores established the founding rules and principles for these different disciplines and sanctioned the moral and political authority of medieval culture more generally. Over the centuries, the continued authority of these founding figures derived from the medieval scribes' ability to interpret, explain, and in most cases resolve historical problems by restating these problems in terms sanctioned by octores. Such restatements commanded authority because they organized otherwise accidental events into an established context capable of making them meaningful. The continued authority to make events meaningful in customary or traditional ways provided all the evidence necessary to sustain the auctor's power. In the Middle Ages, the relationship between these authoritative books and the everyday world was primarily an allegorical one. Worldly events took place in terms sanctioned by an authoritative book, or they were not acknowledged as having taken place at all. To experience an event in allegorical terms was to transpose the event out of the realm of one's personal life and into the realm of applicable authority. Following such a transposition, this event became impersonal, everyone's spiritual quest rather than one's individual personal biography. The benefit of this transportation of the individual was indeed a spiritual one, the ability to experience an event in one's life as a reenactment of a sacred custom. Any event or thing or emotion or thought which made this transference into the realm of the Octors possible continued their cultural authority, whereas individuals within medieval culture could interpret their lives in terms of what is elaborated or reenacted, the sayings of ancient Octors, only the monarch, as God's representative, could claim divine sanction for his everyday actions. By correlating the divine basis of this rule with the Octorial precedence, the medieval ruler sanctioned the Octors' cultural authority. As the source, the beneficiary, and the agent of the culture's authoritative books, the monarch was the perfected cultural form of the octor. His rule was his book, and his subjects were compelled to submit their world to the edicts of that book. Octorial sanction and monarchical rule remain more or less unquestioned until the late 15th century, with the discovery of the New World, whose inhabitants, languages, customs, and laws, geography, and plant and animal life did not correspond to reference in the octor's books. Unlike events and persons in medieval Europe, the inhabitants of the environment of the New World could not be explained in customary terms. Explorers could not find precedence in the world of the Octors for what they discovered in the New World. Instead of returning to the culture's ancient books for allegorical prefigurations, many New World explorers described that they discovered things by making up new words of their own or borrowing terms from those of the natives. One result of this breakdown was the addition of the English language of such words as hurricane, canoe, skunk. Another was the loss of cultural authority for the octor, a related effect of the appearance of the Renaissance historians now referred to as, quote, new men, individuals within Renaissance culture who turned the news sent home from freshly discovered lands into forms of cultural empowerment and unprecedented political actions and their personification by new agents within culture. Among these new cultural agents were authors, writers whose claim to cultural authority did not depend on their adherence to cultural precedents but on a faculty of verbal inventiveness. Unlike the medieval octor who based his authority on divine revelation, an author himself claimed authority for his words and based his individuality on the stories he composed. And that passage comes from Critical Terms for Literary Theory, second edition by Frank Linteria. So I'll kick it back to you. That is a doozy of a passage. I just wrote down a couple of things that came to mind from it. I mean, well, first of all, I know we always seem to get back to the Neoplatonism thing. Um, but I do want to 
reference how that this that does tie in here because when you're talking about the the written word and the understanding of the written word and true appreciation of the language that's being used as being a way of sort of entering the octor's realm if you will um to me that just sounds like it give that's how you climb Jacob's ladder right that's how you can ascend through the holy spheres from your lowly uh perimeter into the center of the circle as it were and become closer and closer to the source of it all which of course in the medieval period was god himself and you know obviously not in not some sort of vague abstract philosophical god as plato had conceived of originally but again talking about a game of telephone here it had become the personal logos of of the christian bible so uh, there's also to tie that this whole idea of the veneration of certain authors in with like John Dewey and more modern progressive thinkers, where at first the listener might be inclined. And, you know, this is true for all of us, I think, given how we're taught history, that, you know, certainly we would never equate the the medievalists with modern progressive thinkers like these are anathema to one another. Right. Well, it seems to me in this veneration of certain figures, we get a kind of pre-formulation of what is called Whiggish history, um, this idea of historical progress. Now, it's a little bit different in the medieval period because it seems like they kind of thought that history had come to an end. However, it had ascended to that point out of a darker period it had come out of paganism and there was this quest to sort of Christianize the continent. And so certainly history had been moving towards better conditions. Only the medievalists sort of thought that it stopped once the Christianity had permeated the continent. However, then they found there were much more lands to conquer. And so it stands to reason that assuming they would have won the crusades and conquered the, the new world for Christ, then you know th that history, that endpoint would have been better than where they were. So I know this is sort of a historical speculation here regarding what their motives might have been, but it matters when we consider how John Dewey and those of his ilk in the progressive era who kind of inherited this Whiggish historical outlook, which really came into being in the Enlightenment, which ironically was originally a rejection of medieval culture and medieval polity, they wind up going right back to these old medieval models and just confuse them for ancient models, right? So there's this resurgence of classicism in the Enlightenment and even in the Renaissance and then in the progressive era where people want to credit the ancients like Plato or the Romans like Cicero for coming up with these great systems of polity and then say, oh, but the dumb old Middle Ages ruined it. It's like, well, guess what? Your conception of all of those ancient people that you love so much was actually formulated by the medievalists that you love to, to rag on so much. So I, that's a nice little historical irony there. But there's this idea that history is improving almost automatically. And embedded within that is the notion that if only people were reading the right things or were concerning themselves with the proper ideas, then this history will continue to develop. It's a kind of erroneous view of evolution might be a good way of people uh, conceptualizing what I'm talking about. That, that classical, like, ape becomes caveman, becomes upright man. Now, obviously, that's not really how evolution works. There are branches and cousinages, of course. But that really simplistic 
conception of evolution seems to me to be the way in which a lot of these highfalutin, self-important philosophers like John Dewey and others uh, seem to think of their intellectual history as progressing, right? We were dumb and now we're smarter and we stand at the apex of history. And there's this really gross urge that uh, that Muir talks about towards the middle slash end of the article, where a lot of these guys, you know, they start off crediting Plato and then Aristotle and then maybe even Cicero and the like. But then after a couple generations of that, they just start taking all the credit themselves. They don't even credit Plato anymore. They don't credit Rousseau anymore. And it's like, even though the guys that came before you were wrong, at least they had a shred of humility and say, well, we'll kick it back to Plato. But then these guys, T.W. Tibble uh, was one such academic uh, philosopher who in the beginning of his career, he credited Plato and Aristotle. But then by the end of it, he was saying, oh, no, educational philosophy is brand new. We all we came up with it. Um, to me, that's just staggering. But it really speaks to this idea of of Whiggish progress, where it's just accepting almost without consideration that we are so much beyond what came before us that we no longer need to respect that which came before us. And this coincides again with the Neoplatonic uh, ascension idea that once you're, if you're reaching the higher rungs of Jacob's ladder, what's the need to look down? You know, you don't want to look back down. You don't want to get sucked back into that, that more uh, mundane, profane history. Boy, I, I really want people, if nothing else, to take away this concept of authorship and how referring to Plato, for instance, is such an easy thing to do because he's in a way the ultimate auctor, maybe short of like the Bible in the Christian sense. You know, obviously there's no higher author than God, but in philosophical terms, Plato is probably the easiest one to go to. So authorship and authority obviously go hand in hand and that being the case, these people like Isocrates fall by the wayside and are replaced, as it were, by the likes of Plato and Aristotle because they and their participation in the larger game of history play into this notion, this retrospective notion that arises after the fact that history is this one great march of progress and that we're a part of this long story yeah, I think you make a really great point there. I think there's a tendency historically to go with whatever works. And I think Dewey, with his progressive ideas, wasn't as much concerned with presenting a historical foundation that was accurate, as well as presenting a general philosophy that could be distilled for the reasoning of modern education. Whereas there is this ominous continuity, this idea that does go back to ancient Roman Greece, that you do need to get the kids at a young age in order to be able to educate them and inculcate them into that society. There's a reason why somebody like T.H. Huxley says that the trivium and the quadrivium are the pinnacle or the penultimate of culture, that you don't have a culture without this common auctor system. If everybody's going out on their own and kind of picking and choosing and making up their own words, then you're getting further and further away from a linguistic semantic universality. Whereas with people like John Locke, and then later Rousseau and others interpreting his ideas and his essays on human understanding, that there was a distillation or a conversation going on about the meaning of words. And once they understood that the authorship or the auctors were a fallacious authority in their eyes, 
The most important thing to recognize here is that this tradition has been an evolution over time, a constant building upon, taking the older octors, sorting through them to what is relevant to reality, the facts that match up with the science at the time, and distilling these into a whatever works kind of educational system for different polities. When people then get the ability to become their own author and step outside of this auctor system of education, then you can create your own neologisms. You can create your own entire classification systems, such as Linnaeus's taxonomy, or in the United States with somebody like Thomas Jefferson, who hoped that the, the Americans would develop their own taxonomy, which would be in competition with those in Europe. What they were really recognizing was that there was a decline in the belief of linguistic universality. And some of this comes through the ideas of John Locke and his essays on human understanding. There was a recognition that words are not sufficient as a universal medium of exchange. And this is something that Thomas Paine talked about, John Adams, Noah Webster, Ben Franklin to a lesser degree, and Thomas Jefferson in their attempts to determine whether or not the United States should continue to perpetuate this ancient form of polity. They started to adopt more modern ideas, such as Humboldt's Research University and pursuing a natural philosophy or science. To tie in all of what we're talking about with the idea of the medium being the message, which we discussed in the, the previous episode of this series, uh, and the listener will recall that uh, what we were discussing then was that by essentially creating the medium of writing of a long form point by point linear document, Isocrates was able to sort of freeze thought in time and then pass it around from person to person. And so ideas could be spread in a sort of ubiquitous fashion, whereas so the words weren't changing from tour, you know, from tour stop to tour stop, as it were. And also implied with that is a sort of class distinction, whereas anybody could hear an orator speak in the marketplace and interpret him in whatever, quote unquote, flawed ways they might. uh, The the literate person is going to be somebody who's probably not profane in the classical sense. And so the people who are reading the documents composed by a good writer are going to be people who are ostensibly people who are more intelligent and are perhaps in more influential social positions so you can really pr- proliferate political ideas and philosophical ideas to a the class that you, if you are somebody who's interested in shaping and creating polities, you're giving the, these ideas to the class that you would want to have them as opposed to a, a, a larger class. So bearing that in mind about Isocrates, it really needs to be stated that Alcuin, aside from creating the liberal arts, well, what else did he do? He streamlined the process of being a writer. He actually took the Isocratean medium and looked at it and said, you know, this whole writing thing is great and all, but it takes a lot of time and it's very clunky and it's not really accessible to the sorts of people that we want it to be accessible to. So Elkowin invented lowercase letters. It's called the Carolingian minuscule. And, you know, every doc, imagine every document you've ever read with nothing but capital letters in it. And, uh, you know, thank Alcuin for them not being that way. So it's a great innovation. But the reason behind it was to streamline the process of copying and proliferating 
texts that were meant to solidify the created culture of the polity that was to become Europe. So Alco or um, I'm sorry, Isocrates was positing a long time before Alcuin and Charlemagne walked the earth. Isocrates was saying, look, Europe is kind of one thing. We're divided up into all these different sections and all the, we have all these different cultures, but perhaps these could all be unified. Now, that's pretty much what Charlemagne lived for. And history remembers him as pater Europae, which means father of Europe. And in, uh, in, this isn't just a kind of, this isn't just to create a legend out of Charlemagne. The reason that he was actually the father of Europe was because, yes, he went out and he conquered and he destroyed. He issued capitularies against pagans and made sure that if you weren't baptized, you were killed. So he certainly conquered Europe by the sword, and that's one form of unity. But perhaps more importantly, and certainly more um, influential to what's going to become the rest of European history, he had his buddy Alcuin go out and create a ubiquitous cathedral school system, the purpose of which was to educate in a uniform fashion. That's the key here, in a uniform fashion, the controlling upper classes, to educate the clergy, to give to make sure everybody was on the same page. And the medium with which he used to do that was to refine the written word, the written page, which had been Isocrates' medium of choice. So really we're seeing a completion or a realization in part of what Isocrates had set out to do all those years before Charlemagne and Alcuin. Alcuin, Flaccus Albinius, was born at York of a noble family at the year 735. At an early age, he was placed in a school over which Egbert, Archbishop of York, presided, assisted by Elbert, one of his relations, who afterwards succeeded him in the Archiepiscopal See. Nothing shows more conspicuously the high estimation in which he was held by his master than the fact that he selected him for companion in his expeditions to foreign countries, for the purpose of transplanting to his native soil whatever he might discover of novelty and value, either in books or in pursuits of science. They traveled together through France and Italy to their ultimate destination, Rome. After his return, Alcuin remained at York as an assistant to his master, Albert, and on the consecration of Albert as the successor of Egbert, he was ordained a deacon. He continued in deacon orders through life. In 781, this is when Alcuin went to Rome to petition for a new archbishopric for York. At Parma, he was introduced to Charlemagne, by whom he was invited to settle his dominion, an invitation which Alcuin, having first obtained the consent of his superiors, accepted. He arrived in France in 782 and undertook the management of the court school, giving instruction to the king, whose education had been much neglected, and to the princes and princesses. Of his instructions, the establishment of true religion was his end and aim. He instructed his pupils in grammar, rhetoric, dialectic, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. The first three, afterwards called the trivium, formed the ethics of Alcuin, and the four others, or the quadrivium, the physics. These two parts were the preparatory studies for the highest of all, theology. The knowledge of those studies was to form and strengthen the mind for understanding the true faith and to protect it against the erroneous doctrines of the heretics. The Anglo-Saxon church was indebted for its foundation to the See of Rome, and consequently between the church and the pope, a most friendly intercourse was kept up, as naturally was to be expected. 
The worst doctrines of popery had not at the time corrupted the Church of Rome, and it was by the benevolence of that see that distant missionaries were supported. Alcuin was imbued with the humble and profound reverence for the See of Rome, and probably communicated to Charlemagne his sentiments with regard to the position of the Pope. What we see here is that Alcuin is doing very much the same thing as Isocrates was doing. He became the systematizer of this educational philosophy, which was done in an encyclopedic fashion. And this was used as the authoritative education, which Charlemagne would then hope to spread all over Europe. You find that the liberal arts is an evolution over time. So the trivium was not even coined until Alcuin's time, and Bothius had already been responsible for coining the term quadrivium quite earlier. So this is a systematization of knowledge for the purposes of educating kings. And what was to Nicocles? This was an attempt to convince the king that if he was virtuous and learned these arts or allowed the muses within his castle, that he could perpetuate a virtuous leadership that would then later be expanded to the public. So I just I wanted to comment on two things. First of all, just this this thing we keep going back to about how the myth of platonic origin of education keeps cropping up here. And, you know, the, the question of why, why is, how is it that these so-called experts can not only, I mean, everyone can make a mistake, fine, but the idea that it perpetuates. And then as Muir points out towards the end of the article, like he gets into arguments with these people who just totally ignore all of his evidence and try to tiptoe around just admitting like, look, yeah, okay, sorry, I was wrong. And you, there's this tendency of people in authority to not be able to admit that because they think it undermines their authority. Whereas, you know, in my personal opinion, I think that, you know, if, if anything can prove your authority, it's the fact that you can admit that you're wrong and incorporate new information into your system. Like that's what a good authority would do. But perhaps I'm reaching here, but I can never help in instances like this uh, of noticing the the phenomenon that Edward Bernays points out in his book Propaganda, which is simply that if you want to convince a large group of people of something, you don't need to go person to person and convince them of it. All you need to do are to is to get the one influential person who has the ear of a hundred or a thousand people that you want to control. Just get that one guy, and then you sway the masses. And so this is how this kind of thing proliferates, I believe, where all it takes is that one teacher at the front of the room that everyone really likes and looks up to and admires, and he's published in this and that journal. Well, if he believes something, and again, it probably just happens by accident in this case, but if he believes something that's erroneous, and now he teaches it to his students, and then they all go off and get their degrees and their authorities in the subject, well, are they really going to listen to the one dude who kind of rolls up from a different field of study and says, hey, you know, you're actually all wrong? Like, why would they? Why would they even consider that? So there's just this very human impulse to rest on your own laurels and to assume that people who are contradicting you are doing so in bad faith. And that leads you to get angry and to dig your heels in and to not want to actually contend with the evidence and admit that you're wrong, which while, while painful in the moment, of course, no one likes to be proven wrong, but in the long run, you're actually going to better your own field, which I would hope that people who are actually interested in this stuff genuinely, that's really what they would want to do. Rather than furthering their own intellectual uh, status, they would want to actually expand the field of educational history. And I mean, what a sensation it would be 
if a whole new generation of educational philosophers came out and said, guys, everything that our predecessors have been saying has been wrong for a hundred years. I mean, let's get to work on fixing it. That would be tremendous. Um, and I, I, I hope that that sort of thing would happen at some point. And it definitely seems like if anybody's going to spur on that, that fight or that uh, renaissance, if you will, of educational philosophy, it will be someone like uh, Mr. Muir here. And so I'm happy to see that he's doing all this. Um, I think that science is fundamentally based on the assumption that the human being can observe reality and then make predictions based on what is observed. That's the ultimate distillation of science. So what that means is that I'm seeing the same reality that you're seeing. Now, we might have it colored by different subjective interpretations and emotional connotations, but when it comes to rolling a ball down a hill, material, physical things such as this, we can make predictions. And this is what um, really set the Enlightenment thinkers, particularly the American ones, apart from the epistemologies that had really entrenched themselves in Europe up to that point. Everything had been abstract and theoretical up until really the the end of the Renaissance and the beginning of the Enlightenment. Um, but the idea that reality is bound together by a fabric of sense or a force, if I dare, for lack of a better term, really, um, if it's all bound together by a rational fabric, then that's something that we can all have access to. We can all interact with it and we all can't help but interact with it. And so all we need to do is start putting different things together and seeing how they work. And you don't need a special degree or somebody to tell you that you're really smart or whatever. You just need to be able to interact with the world that surrounds you. And you can do that probably better if you're somebody who's not cooped up in a, in a dank university laboratory or something. The, that's not where science begins. Certainly the laboratory has its place, but science really begins by taking a walk in the woods, you know? or playing outside as a child and taking your toys apart or, or whatever it happens to be. Science, it, it comes from the curiosity that's innate within all of us. And it democratizes knowledge so much so that even children can begin to do it. Uh, yeah, because if there's something that is established that is verifiable and can be repeated, what do you need these auctors, these ideological auctors that have perhaps their own reasoning for asserting certain things. If, if, if you're taking away the authority of somebody to make assertions because you can prove those assertions are wrong, that would seem to cause a kind of crash of absolutism to the earlier ideology. And I thought it was very important that you mentioned Edward Bernays, and we talked a little bit about his work in propaganda and how that feeds into Walter Lippmann and manufacturing consent. I would say to look into Edward Bernays' uncle, who was Jacob Bernays, who's one of the people actually responsible for helping to distill what the meaning of the Inquiclios Paideia was. Throughout time, this idea of the Inquiclios Paideia incorporating an ordinary or circular education versus the idea that it was an integrated course of studies, a hierarchical step-by-step -step process to becoming. Also from critical terms and literary study, 
I wanted to read this passage. From the 15th century through the first half of the 20th century, the term author enjoyed more or less a constant rise in social prestige. The beneficiary of this esteem that cultures had previously bestowed in their auctors, the author and his work signified a break from the cultural constraints imposed by feudal kings. Authors maintained this affiliation with cultural freedom through their creation of alternative worlds wherein individual human subjects could experience the autonomy denied them in their cultural world. The rise to cultural prominence of the author was correlated from the beginning with the Octor's fall. Like the autonomous human subject, the author was an emergent political and cultural category, which was initially differentiated from the culturally residual category of the Octor. As an example of self-determination, the author guaranteed the individual's ability to determine his own identity and actions out of his own experiences in a culture, and he could reform them rather than endorsing the octorial claim of the transcending culture. The Octor based his authority on divine revelation. The author derived his authority from the discovery of new worlds whose native environments contradicted the Octor's mandates. The Octors produced a culture which reproduced their mandates, and authors at first produced themselves out of the alternative world pictures they used to explain and imaginably inhabit other lands. During the years when feudal Europe was undergoing a fundamental transformation, the author was never defined apart from this process of transformation. Once the work of cultural transformation was considered complete, however, the concept of the author underwent a fundamental change. Having helped affect the historical change from a feudal or predominantly agricultural society through a variety of other political and economic arrangements to a democratic and predominantly industrial Europe, the author was no longer part of the emergent cultural process. Following the realization of this alternative culture he had earlier envisioned, the author's work underwent a related change from a reciprocal workaday relationship with other cultural activities into the realm of genius, which transcended ordinary cultural work. Like the medieval auteur, the quote genius identified the basis for his work and the laws of the creator. Consequently, the realm of the genius was defined as utterly autonomous, free from determination of any cultural category other than the absolutely free constructions of his creative imagination. The genius broke down the reciprocal relationship between the author and the rest of culture. But while the genius occupied this realm of a transcended culture, he nevertheless served a cultural function. As an example of the perfection he could be achieved by an inhabitant of the culture, the genius sanctioned the political authority of the culture in which he appeared. But like the medieval auteur, he defined his authority by the ability to transcend the entire cultural milieu. Whereas the author developed within the culture he helped to develop, the genius claimed to be different from the rest of culture. So to find the work of genius provided a politically useful contrast to other forms of labor and industrial culture. In producing his own work out of the materials, his own imagination, the genius performed cultural as opposed to industrial labor. Industrial workers did not control the means of the product of their labor, but worked with materials and produced commodities owned by somebody else. The difference between the genius who creates other original worlds and the author who cooperates in the emergence of an alternative culture underscores at least two contradictory impulses the author shared from the beginning with other emergent cultural categories, the autonomous subject. Both the author and the individual collaborated with emergent collective processes in social life. The author and the individual shared a tendency to become alienated from society once these collective social processes were fully materialized. Although they were associated with more inclusive social movements that led to revolution and civil war, the author's creative work was not separable from other collective works of the social movements. To understand how the auctor returned, we need to recall how the auctor was first overthrown. 
The Octor had been formally supplanted when the Europeans, in confronting humans they believed to be of a nature other than their own, recognized their own capacity to the other. The basis for successful transformation in a European's nature was the discovery in the New World of a natural phenomenon utterly inexplicable in terms of Octors. Using the New World as a tacit backdrop for their arguments, political theorists like Hobbes and Locke argued that man and his nature was like a savage in the New World. Pre-political, proto-social, derived of protection against any enemy, natural men required a social contract with the monarch to preserve the natural rights and liberties. These theories eventually led to civil wars and revolutions throughout Europe, but all of them traded on an identification within European individuals of another nature that was no longer subject to the rule of either feudal monarchs or their auctors, but in the need of alternative European political systems for its fulfillment. In this process of emergence, this new political system demanded accounts of workings quite different from those of the auctors. As we have seen, the transformation of the auctors' models from an alternative account to alternative worlds resulted in the appearance of authors and different forms of body politic. This led to the creation of this realm of the Republic of Letters, and in this realm, works of genius or great works were recovered as the authority that had previously been exercised as medieval auctors and were elevated to be the examples or the sources for an entire culture. This passage plays into not just the development of that that, uh, Republic of Letters, which is, of course, the basis for the unifying culture that's going to bind together uh, the intellect, the intellectual classes of Europe, um, but it also ties into a kind of response to what we were discussing before about the democratization that is caused by science, where essentially, in John Taylor Gatto's words, uh, genius is as common as dirt, which is to say, taking this definition of genius, that everybody has the potential to be a cultural scientist, if you will. Everyone has the potential to add to the culture, to change things. And this is made more possible, the smaller and the more decentralized your polity is. Because certainly if you throw, if you throw a kid into a pool of 350 million people and say, all right, be excellent. It's like, well, okay, that's meaningless. That's nothing. You're screwing the kid. But if you throw them into a town of, I don't know, a couple thousand people or whatever, it's like, all right, well, now there's a chance, especially if you can get together with a bunch of other kids and they could do, they could conduct a project or um, people who tinker around and invent and engineer things. They could, they could make quite an impact on a smaller polity as opposed to on a larger one where you're competing with gigantic firms and whatnot. So this reintroduction of these great works as auctors um, the reintroduction of the auctors is in a way stifling the respect that we might pay to the ubiquitous genius as he exists or as she exists um, in every household, in every school, as it were. Uh, and instead says, no, 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 no. Look, we've already sorted this stuff out. We've already figured all of these problems out as a culture. Refer back, refer back. Reconsider the answers of the old men who came before us, which... I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but when we rely on these things as if they were gospel, uh, interesting turn of phrase there, um, then we circumvent whatever potential genius might have arisen by saying, ah, we've already sorted that out. Don't worry about it. Don't reconsider it. And so we, in effect, stifle progress. The Isocratean educational system plays into this resurgence of the octors in that the Isocratean system is concerned with what we might call statecraft polity building and 
what Isocrates' aim was, was creating a ubiquitous culture across geographical space. Uh, and to do that, of course, you need to make sure that the young people are brought up in that culture in a uniform fashion. And so regarding the, the statecraft that the Isocratean model plays into, I want to read a portion of the article straight from James Muir. So I'll, I'll do that now. He says, quote, Plutarch, Cicero, and Quintilian all adopt the Isocratic ideal of liberal education in conscious opposition to Plato and Aristotle. As Adamson has observed, it's clear in book one of Quintilian's Institutio Oratoria that, quote, the purposes in which Quintilian had in view and the manner in which he thought to attain them, namely by an appropriate training in rhetoric, are in substance the purpose and method of Isocrates, unquote. Cicero's Republic and Laws are modeled on Plato's dialogues of the same titles, but are intended to provide an isocratic alternative to them, substituting Isocrates' learning orator for Plato's philosopher king. The importance of the educational writings of Isocrates in Renaissance humanism and educational philosophy is widely known and well-documented outside educational studies. As classicists Merhady and Tu observed in 2000, Referring to Hyatt's well-known writings of the 1940s on the transmission of the classical tradition, Isocrates' two works, quote, To Nicocles and Nicocles, are especially significant texts in the history of education. In the Renaissance, they were translated into Latin, English, French, and German as paradigms for the genre known as the instruction of princes, unquote. If we narrow our focus to the history of educational ideas in England in particular, we see even more clearly how Hearst's historical assertions are contrary to the historical evidence. Hearst asserts that Renaissance humanism was an affirmation of Aristotelian liberal education, yet Tudor and Elizabethan humanism affirmed the Isocratic tradition in education in conscious opposition to the legacy of Aristotle. As Shepard has shown, quote, in seeking to dethrone Aristotle, the humanists reasserted the cause of Isocrates and the old rhetoricians, unquote. The, the educational ideas of Renaissance humanism were brought to England by Erasmus, whose educational treatise, The Education of a Christian Prince, was explicitly written in imitation of Isocrates. Erasmus appended his own Latin tradition, excuse me, Erasmus appended his own Latin translation of Isocrates' to Nicocles to the published editors of his educational treatise. The first classical text to be translated from the Greek into English was Isocrates' to Nicocles. The translator, Sir Thomas Eliot, also wrote the first and most influential humanist educational treatise in English, the book named The Governor, and it based on it the ideas of Isocrates. Roger Ashcam, the great English educator of this period, described Isocrates as one of the noblest schoolmasters that is in memory of learning. Francis Bacon's educational treatise is based on an explicit rejection of Aristotle and advocates a combination of scientific education and the Isocratic tradition of rhetorical education. Renaissance humanism in England self-consciously reaffirmed the technical instructions and moral instances from an unbroken line of rhetoricians stretching back through the humanists to Quintilian, Cicero, and Isocrates. Contrary to Hearst's assertions, Renaissance humanism was a reassertion of the Isocratic heritage in education and not a recovery of Aristotelian education. Similarly, and more generally, 
despite a wealth of historical scholarship which establishes and explains Isocrates' profound influence on Renaissance educational philosophy and ideas, not one educational historical essay, textbook, or reference work which discusses this period even mentions him or his ideas, unquote. So that's pretty tremendous in my opinion. I mean, there's a lot to break into there that we probably can't do here. Uh, specifically, I would just say that if anyone's interested in specifically that bit he mentioned about Francis Bacon rejecting the Aristotelian model, uh, check out my episode four of Story of Nowhere, where I tell that story a little bit. But um, what people should take away from that passage, hopefully, is just that this conflation sort of with Aristotelian philosophy as the, the birth of science well, Aristotle was certainly a tremendous force in the generation of what became science, and he certainly studied biology and zoology and all this stuff, so not to discredit him, but the actual fathers of modern science were rejecting what the medievalists had made of Aristotle in the form of scholasticism, which took this really dull, boring, stultified form of, you know, we just debate syllogisms back and forth. In a way, the likes of Francis Bacon sort of rekindled the spirit of Aristotle in like actually going out in the world, although that might not have been known to them because Aristotle had been so watered down by the medievalists. But aside from the contributions to science that the Isocratean model provided the likes of Francis Bacon, hopefully everyone will have also noticed how in the earlier part of the passage, the Isocratean system was explicitly utilized by the Renaissance humanists crediting Cicero, Quintilian, and uh, Plutarch, moving all the way through into the, the English writings of the likes of Erasmus, we find the Isocratean system being utilized specifically to educate those who would control the polity. It's to educate the princes. It's to give people a, a sort of lever of power, if you will. It's not a, an education for its own sake. It's not about learning in like what Plato and Aristotle talked about was learning for the because it's good in and of itself. We we want to study the true, the beautiful, and the good for their own sake. Whereas this Isocratean model is specifically about pragmatic power. It's about creating a ubiquitous uh, universality of language with which to pen people in a way within a culture whose frames are defined by authorities. It's a great point. And when you're talking about that universality of language. You're also talking about this claim of the trivium as an educational method to find logical certainty, whereas historically, this was a way to teach how to read in Latin and in Greek. And then, of course, when the English trivium comes about, they're hoping to divorce the older auctors in this new model. So to tie this all together, what we're discovering here is that Throughout the history of the world and throughout the history of Europe, there has been a, for lack of a better word, a semi-ubiquitous educational system that relies on analogical reasoning and a constant throwing back to earlier auctors. If you were learning grammar, you were learning Donatus and Priscian or Dionysus or depending on the time in which different texts were discovered. To throw back to an earlier point I made, earlier I talked about Nicholas Marie Butler and the creation of the American Classical League, which was being financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. At the turn of the century, the early 1900s, there was a 
attempt to reapply some of these same classical models of education on the American polity. There was an international or transnational thought that the Americans had become illogical and insensible to the rest of the world because we were no longer interfacing with these great ideas on the aristocratic level, at the level of the highest of meritocracy and American education that would go on to be ambassadors and representatives in Congress and in the larger polity. This was the feeling of the academic republic of letters of the rest of the world, is that the Americans had somehow divorced themselves from these traditions. So there was an attempt to reinstitute this. And that was done through Nicholas Marie Butler, who was the head of the Pilgrim Society, who brought in John Erskine. And John Erskine was an educator who had been teaching at these army educational colleges over in France and in England as part of the British American Union. It was John Erskine who then became the teacher of Mortimer Adler, who was the creator of the great books of the Western world. John Erskine says in Memories of Certain Persons, written in 1947, that this course of mine in reading the great books has been adopted in many colleges, but not always as I intended it. Many teachers have turned it into a course on philosophy, on some specific philosophy, and others have tried to expand it into an educational method for teaching all subjects. With these aberrations, I have no sympathy whatever. Science, I think, should be studied in the laboratory, not in the literary gropings towards science before laboratories existed. And to confound all racial and personal variations of history in one philosophy is, I think, to abandon that training of the mind, which enables us to observe accurately and make distinctions. I was concerned with no philosophy and no method for a total education. I hoped merely to teach how to read. So here you have John Erskine, who's one of the originators of reintroducing the liberal education system into the United States, this concept of the auctors or reading these literary giants as a means to come about an integrative way of thinking for oneself or how to read and how to read culture. Whereas Mortimer Adler and Scott Buchanan and some of these people that were involved with the great books of the Western world and later the World Federation movement were taking it back to the older forms of polity creation, using this as a mechanism to create a inclusive acceptance of internationalist ideas. And it didn't matter if the average individual was included in this conversation because they had largely bought into the conversations of Teilhard de Chardin and the newosphere, the idea of an intellectual elite or taking to a higher level of this same concept of the Republic of Letters, where you would have a meritocratic elite that would rule culture or be the auctors for the present day. And it was Erskine who became acquainted with a Rhodes Scholar by the name of John Tigert. Tigert is the one responsible for introducing football scholarships into the United States and largely dumbing down American schooling. But he stated that at Oxford, he had made acquaintance with a kind of education that had not been come at easily in the United States and certainly not in the South. And this was that Isocratean rhetorical creation as speaking for the polis. This was the purpose of the Rhodes Scholarships tradition. This is what William Torrey Harris said in 1902, is that the Americans had become insensible because they had been divorced from the traditions of the liberal arts system from the University of Oxford. They believed that the University of Oxford in the literature humanities or the literae humanores, which was a requirement that you had to learn Greek and Latin in order to participate in this educational system, would be something that would get the American elites back on the 
same page as the rest of the world. This really is the the same lost tools of learning idea, this idea that there's this tool, you know, that, that can be used to discover everything. And here you have John Erskine, who's the teacher of Mortimer Adler and Scott Buchanan, saying that he meant to teach no educational method for teaching all subjects. And he says with these aberrations, he has no sympathy whatsoever. And he thinks that these that these truths should be found through science in the laboratory. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of parallel to what the educational philosophers did to Plato. You know, they they play this game of telephone and, you know, I guess we didn't even bring this up, but um, the Isocratean model being credited to Plato, uh, which is itself this model of um, creating the meritocratic authority, creating a ubiquitous and linguistic culture based around this artificial construction uh, which itself is based on these authorities and literature, you know, who's the victim here? I mean, obviously we are, but so is Plato. I mean, he didn't come up with that stuff and yet it's put on him. And it's like the same thing gets is done with Erskine where he's like, I just was talking about this way to help people learn to read. And, you know, well, <laughs> that's all. But then it all gets thrown back on him because what others uh, made of it. So really the, the lesson here, there are a lot of lessons to learn in this article, uh, most of them historical lessons, but also in terms of just general philosophy lessons, there's the lesson of obviously don't just trust experts out of hand because oftentimes they, they're they building on uh, foundations of sand, but also it's really important to make sure that we're not ascribing credit where it's not due. Because you're going to find that in a lot of cases, in the case of Plato and in the case of John Erskine, their actual philosophy turned out to be something very different. And this just speaks to the nuance of philosophy where Plato and Isocrates can both speak of education. And so it's easy to say, oh, well, okay, I guess they're the same. Or I guess Plato came up with Isocrates. They're not interchangeable. They're not interchangeable. And same with Erskine. Yeah, he talked about the trivium. Does that mean he believed the same thing about the trivium that his students did? No, not necessarily. So you know, the, the nuance is always going to be present. And so we need to make sure we don't fall into these big, whiggish, progressive narratives where it's just easy. And it almost makes history serve a pragmatic purpose in the present. We tell this story in the form of a myth so that it justifies what we're doing now. History doesn't work that way. It's not tidy. It's not pretty. Um, so that's the ultimate takeaway I get from that Erskine story. So, and, and that also tells me, that also tells me that, um, that the, the trivium as a uh, tool of cultural control and stuff, that's not the only way to take it. Like if, like, I think you said this in the last show. Um, and I know you've said this in other places as well, but if somebody finds the, the metaphors of grammar, logic, and rhetoric useful, then rock and roll, man. That's great. You know, if that's the way you interpret that tool, then that's the way you interpret that tool. We're not here to tell you that, oh, actually, the real meaning of trivium is this, and this is how you should interact with it, so so much as it is to say, you should know this history before you decide how you're going to interpret it. That's that's the point that I'm taking away from this. So the nuance, the nuance, the nuance. I think that's that's what we always come back to. That neoplatonism, the two ends. Um so I, I hope that uh, we're we're making this palatable to people. I know this is a lot of really, you know, kind of dense esoteric stuff, 
But I think hopefully as we continue to have these conversations and flesh this stuff out, it becomes more and more understandable. And uh, really, you know, again, once again, just to reiterate, I think that the study of history is something that's very nuanced. Uh, it's not tidy. And we need to be very careful about falling into these these myths that when you actually dig into them, it turns out that they actually serve a purpose for those people that might not have your uh, individual flourishing uh, as their primary interest. So that be wary of myth, study your history, and uh, be prepared to get hit over the head with a two by four of nuance and questions. And <laughs> it's really easy to look at history and to create generalizations in order to fill different gaps of things that we don't know. Uh, because that uh, that uncertainty is what William Tory Harris said would lead to a agnosticism and anarchism in society. So they felt that they needed to have a compulsory education system, which would allow this open secret to be transcribed to an individual who sought it. And the rest were just automatons. And so with John Erskine, he's somebody that was trying to reintroduce the concept of the greats as a means of helping people to learn to read and write. Whereas Mortimer Adler and Scott Buchanan, who were students of his, came along and said, hmm, we've discovered something novel here. We've rediscovered the trivium. Somehow the historical trivium has been totally divorced from our culture. And they diagnosed that it needed to be reinserted. Whereas Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, and Noah Webster found that our central organizing principle was a decentralization of this knowledge. And that's where freedom resides. So this is a larger conversation we're going to continue to have. And I, I look forward to talking more about some of the maybe nefarious visions that people like Mortimer Adler and Scott Buchanan had and how that relates to uh, culture generally. And, and I'd like to get into more later on of some of the motivations of people like Mortimer Adler and Scott Buchanan, who were claiming to rediscover the trivium as a tool for teaching everybody this, this new educational method, that we had somehow been divorced of all ability to have critical thinking, simply because some of our forefathers had denounced some of these traditions. So I'd like to thank you again for joining me for this episode two of the Realm of Isocrates and our look at how our educational history is mostly wrong and how Isocrates' ideas have been neglected over time. Thanks again for joining me. If you'd like to tell everybody how they can find your work. Absolutely. And I, I want to thank you for having me on. I really enjoy this and it's very educational. Everyone can go to storyofnowhere.com. And uh, you'll find my podcast as well as some bonus material that I've got going up there. The podcast Story of Nowhere is also available on Spotify and Podomatic, uh, as well as Podcast Addict. Uh, so whatever app you use, recommend checking it out, especially if you enjoy this series, because concurrent with this series, I've been releasing what I'm calling a brief history of critical thinking, just taking a very general uh, survey of history from the time of essentially when we were all uh, living in tribes before the first cities, all the way up until the modern age, and just looking at how critical thinking and uh, obviously education plays into that, how these things have evolved over time, what's changed about them, and what's stayed the same. So I would recommend, if you enjoyed this episode, listening to the third episode of my critical thinking series, where I talk about the Middle Ages and the development of the liberal arts and scholasticism. This all ties in this is all just elucidating a larger history of what education and thought, human thought has actually been, and very importantly, how human thought has been manipulated and controlled by people who don't have our individual flourishing in mind. 
they're more about creating and controlling a polity that's easy to manage, whereas that doesn't align with my interests. And so this is why we do this. So once again, Kevin, I want to thank you very much for inviting me on here, and I look forward to doing it again. Thank you so much. Me too. Talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.